Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 385 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be covering everything in the world of professional wrestling as it pertains to NXT and AEW. We are just over one week away from the end of the year 2022 coming to a conclusion, and your boy, the Silver King, along with vintage Chris Vanini, we have plenty planned as a way to wrap up this year but before we get to any of that beginning next week we're here as i just said to break down nxt and aew as we get into the show allow me to remind you right off the bat as always that getting over So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a few moments. Leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know why they should subscribe to the show. And if you do, I promise we will read those five-star written reviews right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, great stuff all week, every week. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast overcast. Now, with no more pay-per-views or premium live events on the docket through the end of the year, both NXT and AEW are building to their special early January shows. For NXT, of course, they're doing New Year's Evil once again as a TV special, and AEW will be following suit. I don't know if they're actually calling it New Year's Smash, which is what they actually used to do in the past. But their January 4th Dynamite is clearly being built as a special show. There's a number of different elements that are going to come into play regarding that show. We will certainly discuss all of that as this episode progresses. And of course, we'll spend a little extra time on it next week, which will basically be the go-home show, at least for AEW, for that special event. So there is, once again, a ton to talk about today. Before we get to that, a quick reminder, we already have our WWE episode in the books from this week. It's in your podcast feed, wherever you're listening, wherever you're subscribing from Tuesday. Great in-depth show. We really talk a lot about the bloodline, Sami Zayn, what exactly is going to happen with that going into the new year. And of course, we also make some early predictions for, you know, things, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, where storylines are going for WWE. And if you happen to be listening to this show, and for some reason you missed our coverage last week, we did a special episode last week on the release of Mandy Rose. So be sure to go back and listen to that if you missed it. In terms of what's coming up here on Getting Over, we're going to wrap up the year next week with three episodes. We're going to have your WWE episode, of course, your NXT and AEW episode, and a very special 2022 year in review show. This, at least in my opinion, and certainly as I do the work building the show and putting it together, this to me is the wildest year in the history of professional wrestling. And obviously that goes back Decades upon decades upon decades in terms of it actually being on television. And yet 2022, really from January 1st all the way to the end of the year, and we're going to see what happens over these next 10 or so days, it has been an absolute nonstop headline-making machine. So we decided to do a special 2022 year-in-review episode. That is coming next week. And then two weeks from now, we will do the 2022 Getting Over Awards aka the Medes, first week 
of 2023. As you know, if you do follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, we are sending out tweets taking nominations for the Getting Over Awards. Once those nominations are all in, there will be a, I think it's, I think I use Google Forms, a voting platform uh, for you all to vote on the Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties, and your vote counts just as much as mine or Chris's. We all get a one-third share, and we will certainly find out who wins those awards at the start of 2023. But that is not why we are here today. Today, we are here to break down NXT and AEW from the last week. And these shows normally begin with a breakdown of AEW. I'm going to switch things up this week and actually talk NXT off the start, just because it happened to be such a tremendous show from start to finish. And it was a taped episode beyond that. Usually when you get a taped NXT Something kind of falls off and maybe they go through the motions a little bit, but this one was strong from start to finish. AEW Dynamite on Wednesday, certainly a good show as well. It had its pluses and its minuses. We will discuss that later for anyone who may be listening to the show for the first time. Just so you know, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So if you just want to listen to NXT or just want to listen to AEW, hit the episode description, find the timestamp, and you can jump to the appropriate point. But as always, I do hope if you're listening to this episode, that you are listening all the way through. As I noted, let's kick things off with NXT. So we had Booker T interviewing Roxanne Perez. He said he feels like Morpheus from The Matrix and Perez is the one. She recalled telling Booker at age 16 back at Reality of Wrestling in Texas that she wanted to be in WWE. And five years later, now she is NXT champion. Not only that, she won the NXT breakout, the Iron Survivor Challenge, and the women's tag team titles all inside of nine months. And she didn't say this, obviously, but Roxanne Perez started the year as Roxy, the ROH women's champion. So when you consider that she's just turned 21 and she's done all of this in a calendar year, it really is extraordinary. Uh, Perez also said Booker told her to bank on herself during training. That's the reason she made the challenge for Mandy Rose immediately. Roxanne then turned it around. She asked Booker for some advice. He said, he's all about checks and championships. And the key is keeping your butterflies in check while you're trying to make history. This was just an incredibly sweet and emotional interview segment, really wholesome. And that's, yeah, that's probably the better word, wholesome. It was a great choice to have Booker do this with Roxanne. You could tell their relationship is genuine. He's legitimately proud of her. The whole time he looked at her like kind of like a prideful father. And even after it was over, he couldn't wipe the smile off of his face when he was sitting at the commentary desk. Roxy was also tremendous, explaining like the craziness of her last nine months, why she did what she did, and how thankful she is to be in the position uh, that she has arrived in. So I thought it was just an extremely well done segment from start to finish. Now the show opened in terms of a match with Carmelo Hayes against Axiom. Melo hit a pump kick as Axiom kipped up, following with a takedown hurricanrana and a crossface. Axiom came back with an armbar and a triangle, but Mello lifted him for a sit-down powerbomb with the referee oddly not counting, despite Axiom's shoulders like clearly being on the canvas. Uh, he got back in the triangle. Mello slammed Axiom's head into the canvas using his mask to break it. They jockeyed holding hands on the top rope with Axiom hitting a really sick avalanche hurricanrana. Trick Williams pulled Axiom down with the referee checking on Mello as he was about to hit Golden Ratio, Axiom I'm talking about. That opened the door for the jumping code breaker for Mello and Nothing But Net, which apparently is now the name of that flying leg drop finisher for the win. After the bell, Axiom hit a moonsault outside on Trick as an act of revenge. So look, it's shocking to me that 
Mello has been on top this long, yet the finisher is just now getting a name when really this thing should be changed completely. I don't know how many times I need to explain that it is not at the long-term best interest of Carmelo Hayes for him to be landing on his tailbone as his finisher every single match that he's in. At least come up with a secondary finisher, that way you can go back and forth between the two. But on its own, it's not a good finisher. And then when you add in the fact that it can shorten his career, it just doesn't make sense that someone this athletic and this talented doesn't have a better finisher than a flying leg drop. I, I It truly boggles my mind. I don't get it. And he's not, I mean, there are a number of wrestlers historically. I mean, Hulk Hogan had the running leg drop as his finisher, right? This is arguably, some would say, the greatest or the most popular wrestler of all time. His finisher sucked. The difference is Mello is 50 times as athletic and talented in terms of like, from a technical, you know, professional wrestling standpoint, work rate standpoint, than Hulk Hogan, right? So why is he basically doing the same finisher move except jumping off the top rope instead of just doing it right on the canvas? It, it's very frustrating. I know he can do better. I know that they can get more creative with him. So it was frustrating that this finally got a name when I was thinking, oh man, maybe they'll just change it up and that's why they're not doing that. So frustrating there, but this was an excellent match as expected, probably like around 375 and a B. Mello, of course, had to win. The idea of Axiom getting a win back against Trick, that's smart because Axiom has been on quite a run recently. He's hot and you don't want to slow his momentum by just having him lose to this and then go into another feud and lose. So I would have him go and beat Trick, keep him strong. Maybe you put him in a North American championship you know, type of picture going forward. And of course, Carmelo Hayes, the goal with him is to move into the main event. Uh, Grayson Waller backstage was inspired by last week's events, Roxy cashing in on Mandy. So he challenged Braun Breaker for the NXT title on the show. Mackenzie Mitchell informed him Breaker was on a media tour in Charlotte for Vengeance Day, but Waller suggested Braun was probably watching NXT and he could make it back in time to meet him in the ring. Tony D'Angelo informed Stax that he got a North American Championship match next week and he wanted Stax to tell Dijak to stare out of their business. Waller approached and asked if D'Angelo could tell Breaker he's looking for him when Braun shows up. Wesley later said he would take on D'Angelo and then Dijak in succession if he needed to. Stax was shown laying down the law to Dijak, but he was actually just practicing outside his locker room, which I thought was pretty damn funny. Waller then talked shit again, wondering where Breaker was at. And we never really saw what happened when Stax ended up going into Dijak's locker room, but I assume we will see that next week. Now, despite Waller's expectation of Breaker being just nonsensical, getting from Charlotte to Orlando in two hours. It's nearly impossible unless you're already on a plane in the air. The three segments here showcased improved promo ability really from everyone that I just mentioned, including Stax, who was actually pretty good backstage. Now, in the main event segment, Waller came out to challenge Breaker again. He called him a coward while saying he's carried the brand all year and there's not a man or a woman in NXT or even the main roster who can match him. As he continued to brag and talk trash, Braun pulled up to the arena in a black Dodge. He charged inside, then out to the ring. Braun immediately ran in and he speared Waller, but he completely knocked himself out while doing so. Waller was also hurt by the spear, but he slowly got up and revealed that he outsmarted the champion by wearing a flak jacket with a metal plate inside. He promised to outsmart him one more time when he wins the NXT title. You know, this didn't hit for me as well as NXT probably wanted it to. We've seen this so many times with wrestlers who use the spear as a finisher, the flak jacket and the metal plate and the whole deal. 
but it was still better than the vast majority of the storylines that we've gotten involving Breaker over the last six months. Waller did legitimately outsmart him in kayfabe, and it also explained why he was goading him so heavily throughout the entire show. You know, it was like a, to try to put it in context, it was like a 6.5 out of 10. That's probably the best way I can describe it. It was good, nothing wrong with it, but I wouldn't call it great by any means. Apollo Crews at the ring after congratulating Roxy, which was just kind of odd that he did that. He said his vision of winning the NXT title was clear, but even though he failed, he's not out of championship contention and planned to be next up for a shot at Vengeance Day after Breaker defends against Waller at New Year's Evil. Mello immediately cut him off, saying, Apollo, you're at the back of the line and you may be nice, but I'm going to hang your jersey just like I have everyone else that I faced, especially the veterans. Cruz put Hayes over in a pretty major way, but said, no matter how good he might be, there's always someone better out there and he's willing to prove it anytime, anyplace. This was actually a hot and well-executed promo battle. Cruz has improved immensely over the last year, especially on the mic. And this will be a banger number one contendership match. There's really not much more to say about it, but it definitely hit all the right points. New Day were backstage making Pretty Deadly jump through more hoops for a tag team title rematch. They acquired a bunch of WWE memorabilia, but they couldn't find Nails' prison outfit because he's still in jail. Xavier Wood said they may just need to get arrested and he wouldn't accept them doing the Pledge of Allegiance because that whole deal was last week. Woods then shouted out Tyler Breeze before the whole thing ended and... I just couldn't help but think, man, Breeze and Pretty Deadly, they would just make so much sense together. But this was a damn funny interaction between these four. They continue to have amazing chemistry together. And I'm glad I was right. I'll do a little Barry Horowitz. I'm glad I was right last week when I said that this was not a USA-England thing, but a extended jumping through hoops type of storyline. The fact that they continued it this week and did something different proved that. And that was a huge positive. Uh, Fallon Henley discussed her family's money problems with Briggs and Jensen at the bar. Their goal was to win the tag team titles and then hold watch parties at the bar. That way they could earn money and save the place. Kiana James walked in with her assistant, evaluating the bar for liquidation. James explained she got the bank to put a lien on the bar, giving her time to purchase it outright from the bank. Jensen was embarrassed having accidentally revealed that information last week. Henley then challenged James for the rights to the lien against owning the bar outright. Later backstage, Briggs and Jensen promised to go balls to the wall during their tag team title match. James then wished Jensen good luck. He blushed. Then she told Mackenzie Mitchell that she may be all business, but she's still a woman too. This was just like <laughs> pure D-level acting. Like even worse, this was re- this something that really bothered me. This is supposed to be like a country bar, like a family-owned bar kind of in the sticks. And... It's been passed down through her family and, and there's all this history and stuff, right? When Kiana James opened the door and walked into the bar, the background, like what you saw in the background, was clearly either downtown Orlando or at least a shopping center in a city or a suburb or something like that. So it completely ruined like the aesthetic and the concept of what this bar is. I don't know why they took that camera shot when it's completely antithetical to really what they're trying to say in storyline. Look, here's the deal. I cannot wait for this to end and for James to get a new character. None of it feels even the least bit realistic. Like, sure, I guess theoretically these things could happen in life. Someone could have money problems and own a bar and and a, a capitalist could, or a business person could, you know, put a lien against it and try to get it out from under them. Sure, that stuff happens all the time. But 
in terms of like wrestling and the way that they are trying to execute it, especially with Kiana James's character, it just to me, it is a huge miss on a week to week basis. And even individual funny elements of it, like Jensen getting embarrassed or James being like, I'm still a woman, even though this guy's an idiot. Uh, he likes me so much that what am I going to do? Turn him down uh, like things like that. Sure, there's OK elements to the entire thing. And yes, Briggs and Jensen are getting moderately better in terms of character work and things like that. But it's just like I said, it's D-level acting. It's not being executed well. And, you know, it's like they're trying to do a storyline from, you know, 1992 in 2022, where in 1992 you would do vignettes with the bar and there would just be this just huge um, groundswell of fan support for, for these people getting taken advantage of or being screwed out of their family rights, you know, to, to the bar and stuff. But now in 2022, when you're doing it, Again, the way that they are trying to execute it, and then you're having them wrestle in front of a performance center crowd, it and kayfabe is dead also in 2022 for the most part. It just doesn't hit the same, and I appreciate the effort. It's just not there. Uh, the tag team championship, let's move to that. The New Day defended against Briggs and Jensen. Kofi Kingston hit SOS. Jensen grabbed the bottom rope. Brooks then did the rebound lariat to both of the champions outside before they combined for an assistant spinebuster lariat and near fall. Briggs then hit a shockingly graceful moonsault on Kofi. Woods then pushed Jensen off the top rope with Kingston hitting a spike poison Rana on Briggs and a tope on Jensen before Woods nailed the springboard elbow drop basically across the entire ring for New Day to retain the titles. New Day then waited while celebrating. They shook the challenger's hands after the bell and they put them over in defeat. This match completely exceeded expectations to the point that fans chanted, that was awesome. After the bell, Jensen is immensely rough around the edges. Still, Briggs could probably be a heavy on the main roster already, like yesterday. I'm sure he could do it. He's ready made for this. His moveset is relatively unique for a guy his size, and he just works. He's really the total package. New Day was fantastic selling for the neophytes, putting them over in the end. Just a truly strong and fun match. I'm realizing right now that I had my numerical grades uh, messed up a little bit. I, don't, I try not to like officially grade TV matches unless they completely deserve it, but I transpose these two. So this one was the one that I had approximately 3.75 B plus and the Axiom Mellow match that I mentioned earlier, I had that around four stars. So I just wanted to correct that before we continued. But this match, like I said, it did exceed expectations. Uh, another match that totally exceeded expectations was the Women's Tag Team Championship, Caden Carter and Katana Chance defending against Toxic Attraction, as well as Ivy Nile and Tatum Paxley in a triple threat match. Uh, the champions did an assisted double splash outside. Chance took Paxley off Carter's shoulders with an avalanche hurricanrana from the top in a ridiculous spot. Paxley then hit a sick assisted corkscrew splash off the ropes onto JC Jane. The champs set up for their finisher when Paxley pushed Chance off the ropes into Toxic at ringside. Niall got her sidearm bulldog kind of move locked in but Carter repelled herself off the bottom rope and over Nile to get the one, two, three and retain the titles. Now, this was not necessarily an outstanding match, but some of the spots that I mentioned were indeed outstanding. Beyond that, the finish created a tremendous false expectation of a title change. I've said it a million times, but Caden and Katana could be on the main roster yesterday. And I've been saying that for the better part of a year. They are a real tag team. 
with a fully established moveset. They work well. The crowd loves them. They are every single thing you want in a women's tag team for the main roster. Now, I have no problem with them remaining NXT champions for a while, but a call-up should come the second they drop those titles. This was a blast to watch from bell to bell, despite some of the inexperience in the match. And again, I'm really not trying to grade all of these matches, but this was like in that 3.5, 3.75 star range. It was a very good wrestling match, especially from a women's tag team division that is still in the middle of growing and finding its footing. Now, later in the parking lot, Niall and Paxley, they were walking with the Creed brothers. The women said the loss was a small setback, but they had strides to make as a team. The Creeds expressed pride in their performance, the women's performance. When Indu Sure walked up to check on their status, Julius Creed said he's finally cleared and he'd prove it next week against J.D. McDonough, who injured him. Now, I thought it was nice to see a parking lot segment for a change without someone being like murdered, maimed, or kidnapped, especially in NXT. And this worked. You know, it continues the storyline between the Creed's and uh, Indu Sure, and I assume that that match is eventually going to happen at New Year's Evil. Uh, Zoe Stark fought Nikita Lyons. Stark got attacked while she was making her entrance. Lyons was back in her awful gear. Stark had a great leg slap on a back kick that like reverberated in the entire arena. She eventually trapped Lyons in a pinning combination and grabbed the bottom rope for leverage to earn the victory. Nikita held up decently well with Zoe. She definitely does seem to be improving. There's not really a doubt about that. She's just nowhere near ready uh, for anything of consequence, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, The finish made sense given Stark's heel turn, but she really should be able to just actually beat Lions clean. And Nikita, she needs to go back to that attire she wore in her prior match, not this one. Those big circles on the legs and like the stomach and just, it just looks so awkward and it doesn't make her look good. And presentation is one of the things that she's priding herself on, you know, in terms of her character and, and everything that she's gone through. So I don't, it's just the weirdest looking gear that I've ever seen. And I don't understand why she continues to use it. Uh, Alba Fire was walking backstage with her bat when suddenly Isla Dawn blew a bunch of red powder into her face that blinded her and caused her pain. She later got checked out by a trainer. She was cleared to wrestle Sol Ruka. As Fire made her entrance for the match, Dawn appeared through her smoke and trapped her arm between the steel steps and the ring post before slamming it with Alba's own bat. Trainers ran to Fire's aid. She sold a broken right arm or something like that as Dawn slowly departed. Now, it's tough to say whether this was a way to write Alba out of the territory or just give her a few weeks off TV, perhaps coming back for a rivalry match at Vengeance Day. I mean, the name of the show, of course, Vengeance, being apropos in this situation. They could probably do some type of stipulation bout to really sell the entire thing. All in all, it worked, even though it's a bit frustrating for me, at least, to still see Alba Fire there, despite everything she's been through, all those losses that she's taken in kayfabe, and the fact that she's been ready for the main roster since she was in NXT UK, and yet she's still just hanging around NXT, not as champion, not as number one contender, basically being on the losing end to everything against Isla Dawn, who is new to the territory. So I just find the way they're booking her to be a little odd and disappointing, but maybe it all makes sense in the end. Uh, Indy Hartwell fought Electra Lopez. Electra basically got zero pop when she entered, and she had a really confusing elevator type of entrance at that. Like, it was an elevator entrance, but she didn't come up from underneath or come down from on top. It it was quite odd. Uh, Lopez tried pulling off the top turnbuckle when Hartwell grabbed her. Electra was in a back body drop position, when all of a sudden she fell into Indy, flattening her and getting the one, two, three. 
So like the crowd had no reaction. Me at home, I'm like, what the hell was that? They botched that shit. But then NXT immediately showed a replay with Lopez actually grabbing brass knuckles out of the turnbuckle. So she wasn't trying to rip it off. She was grabbing brass knuckles out of the turnbuckle. And then when she was in that back body drop position, or sorry, backdrop position, she punched Hartwell directly in the head. That led her to collapse and got her the one, two, three. It was still extremely clunky and really impossible for the in-arena audience to understand what happened. So while I appreciate them trying to do something different, this in particular just did not land. Uh, Cora Jade backstage talked about deserving the women's title more than Roxanne Perez when Wendy Chu just straight up attacked her. And of course, they needed to get separated. Nothing else happened other than a match between the two being announced for next week. This will be the rematch. I assume it'll go to a third. You know, we'll kind of see how it plays out. Chase, you had a holiday party with the students all lined up giving Andre Chase gifts. He went off on that dumbass Scott for bringing a MFing fruitcake as a gift. So three other students ran out because they brought the same gift. Duke Hudson didn't have a gift. He was at the back of the line. So he lied to another student, Alex, about his scholarship situation and said he'd hold his gift for him, which was a number one professor engraving. So then he gave it to Chase and Chase hugged him, thanking him for the gift. And the camera showed Hudson had a little bit of a devious smile. This continues to hit every week. It's good stuff overall. There's enough questions about where is this heading? Is Hudson going to turn on them? What is the purpose of him doing this? And yet you're still getting really entertaining segments while those questions are being asked. Uh, Drew Gulak was training when Hank interrupted, I guess his name's Hank Walker, uh, interrupted saying he may not be Charlie Dempsey, but he's not afraid of hard work and he's willing to prove himself. Gulak invited him to a seminar next week on NXT where he could observe but not participate. And Hank was over the moon really excited about it. I'm just enjoying what they're doing now with Gulak. I have no idea if it's going to turn into Catchpoint 2.0, which was a faction that he had in Evolve, obviously just catch point, not 2.0, but it was a faction that he had in Evolve. It would certainly be interesting to see something like that in NXT. I don't want to say Blackpool Combat Club vibes, but along the same lines of that, where they're approaching it from a technical wrestling standpoint, except I believe if memory serves, catch point were heels. I have to go back and, and research that a little bit because I never got to like watch all of the Evolve episodes or like see as it, you know, progressed. I just saw like individual matches where they where they were together kind of doing the gimmick. So I need to go back and double check on that. But Gulak ran it. Uh, obviously something that he liked to do. It was something that fans very much liked. And doing that again in NXT would make a lot of sense. Obviously Gulak not being used on the main roster. Also, I do believe he's a trainer coach of some kind. I don't know if it's like, permanent full-time, or if it's just whenever he's able to with his schedule. Uh, But I know he's frequently in NXT in the Performance Center. So having him be there doing that and then leading a group like that, like Catchpoint, would just make a lot of sense. and would be great for television. Uh, Odyssey Jones, Idris Anofe, and Malik Blade were clowning backstage when they saw Ava Rain, who said they were basically making up for their insecurities by just having fun. Schism showed up behind her to get her back and then threatened the faces, which obviously is going to lead to a six-man tag team match down the line. It was okay. I mean, there wasn't much to it. Uh, Oro Mensa got a vignette about going clubbing, saying he may not be here for a long time, but he's going to have a good time. This was mediocre to poor. Like, enough with these generic party people. The guy seemed to have some type of unique angle to his gimmick upon debuting, only to now get reduced to, I like to go clubbing. Like, there's no, 
<laughs> There's no reason not to do better than a guy who likes to party as a gimmick. Please come up with something else. Oromensa's talent and ability deserve something better than whatever this gimmick looks like it's going to be. So that is NXT this week. Like I said, it was a much stronger show than expected given it was a taped episode. It actually got, I think, 905,000 viewers on USA Network, which is one of, I think, the five highest ratings in terms of total viewership of the year. And for that to be a taped episode during the holiday season, that means that, man, there's some momentum behind NXT right now. It's great to see that happening. And what's really interesting, too, is they're still in that developmental mode. But what did I say about this show? We got a match that was around four stars, another one that was around 375, and another one that was around 35. All on the same episode, all of them, including a good amount of developmental talent, not necessarily exclusively developmental talent, but at least some developmental talent in all of those matches. So again, really entertaining episode from start to finish. Not, you know, the best NXT of the year or anything like that. But when I watched Tuesday night and I looked down at the end and I was like, why is Grayson Waller coming out? Oh shit, it's the main event. This thing's almost over. The two hours legitimately flew by, at least for me as a viewer. So that is NXT this week. Let us move to AEW. As I noted, they are building to that very special January 4th show. A lot of stuff seems to be changing or happening on that show. Don't know whether it's going to be New Year's Smash, which is what I believe they've called it previously, but uh, maybe it'll get that moniker or maybe it already has it and I just missed it. But we will be talking everything that happened on this week's Dynamite and Rampage all mixed together based on storyline. So let's start with the way Dynamite started. That was with Ricky Starks doing a promo about losing like a man while MJF won like a coward, as he should have expected. He said he would work his way back into title contention if necessary, because he would eventually wind up on top. Then Chris Jericho entered to put him over as a million dollar talent, saying he's almost there, but not ready just yet. He offered membership in the JAS. Starks immediately made fun of Jericho recently being heavy and the way he dresses before calling them jobbers. It was way funnier than I'm describing. Uh, One of the things he mentioned was that Jericho was built like an air fryer, which is just an incredible insult. Great line. Uh, Starks went on insulting them before challenging Jericho for that January 4th show. Jericho said that was the wrong answer as Jake Hager attacked from behind and JAS beat him down until Action Andretti made the save, literally taking out three of the four guys, and hitting a split leg moonsault on Jericho. Andretti later cut a backstage promo, thrilled about how his life has changed since last week's upset. He was excited about having Starks' back when 2.0 distracted him, and then Jericho on the other side threw a fireball in his face. So, okay, let's start with the promo segment. Really entertaining. Starks got a chance to shine coming out of a loss against Jericho, who knows how to get people over on the mic. There's not really much to analyze about it other than they both were awesome going back and forth. It is another big match for the January 4th show, which we're going to assume that will get made official. And as I noted, they are clearly trying to pop a rating and make that show a big event. They're promoting it heavily. There's the mystery partner for Soraya, which many of us believe it could be potentially Sasha Banks. Now there's talk about a new set, production changes coming given that person that they hired who used to work for WWE. So we'll eventually see what all of it looks like. The Jericho fireball spot though was absolutely atrocious. Are they really still doing the wizard bullshit with this guy after all of this time that has passed? Like what a shitty end to what was really a strong backstage promo for Andretti and an overall 
really good promotion for something involving Starks and Jericho. The fireball is just so ridiculous. And regarding Starks Jericho, let's just hope this is a one-off that ends on January 4th. If Starks gets stuck in like another never-ending Jericho or JAS feud, all of that momentum that he's had or that he's taking coming into this, it's just going to get wasted. On Dynamite, a clip of MJF backstage from last week aired. He cut a promo on Brian Danielson calling him a hipster scumbag, trying to ride his wave after ruining his moment when he beat Starks. He said Danielson would eat less than he desires and more than he deserves, which was just like a kind of a weird closing line to a promo. It was fine. Not the best, you know, that MJF can do. But when AEW advertised that we would hear from MJF, I expected to see him live. We later saw a clip of him watching another segment backstage. So he was in the building, yet he never spoke live in front of the audience. And I'm trying to figure out what sense this makes. This is now two of three weeks since this guy was crowned your AEW champion that he has not been in front of fans on AEW's biggest show. That to me is just nonsensical decision-making. So later, Danielson came out to be interviewed by Renee Paquette. It's one of those where she asked one question and then that was the entire interview. Uh, He put over being trained in San Antonio by Shawn Michaels, which got an HBK chant from the crowd. But he said William Regal made him the wrestler in person he is today. He yelled into the camera that there will be consequences for MJF's actions and demanded he come out. Instead, Ethan Page entered, unwilling to let Brian jump the line. There was a really fun back and forth with the crowd putting major heat on Page and Stokely Hathaway. Brian challenged and Page obviously accepted, but only for next week. Another great promo segment on the show, but I will say it did feel repetitive from what we got with Starks and Jericho, given both were in the first 45 to 60 minutes of the show, and both of them were dual promo segments that were notably long. That said, it does make sense for Danielson to go through Page before ultimately challenging MJF, I presume at the next pay-per-view. The best line, though, was from Stoke. He called Brian a raggedy bitch a couple times. Dude is funny as hell, and this was hysterical, him saying that. Uh, We had the, I guess, let me do a count, the fifth match between Death Triangle and the Elite. This one was a no-disqualification match where all weapons could be used. Obviously, Death Triangle entered with a 3-1 lead. At the bell, Excalibur sold the difficulties of coming back from down 3-1, relaying it to the NBA. They made it somewhat of a holiday gimmick match using a fake tree as a weapon. Kenny Omega stopped Pack from breaking Matt Jackson's ankle in a chair. Then he did his signature moonsault combination with a trash can and wore out Death Triangle with a barbed wire broom. The Young Bucks did an elbow drop and a swanton bomb through tables outside as Omega hit Tiger Driver 98 on Ray Phoenix into the barbed wire bat, which got stuck to his ass. And somehow, that wasn't the finish to the match. Phoenix countered a one-winged angel into a Hurricanrana cover for a 2.99 false finish. Then he used the ring hammer legally, but Omega kicked out again. Matt Jackson got them out of a triple submission. When Death Triangle tried to use three hammers simultaneously, Omega hit a Snapdragon and the Bucks nailed the Meltzer driver onto a chair for the win. Pack and Pentagon attacked after the bell with the Elite all blading from hammer shots to the head. Okay, so off the bat, this was basically a tornado match. And that's fine in theory, given it was no disqualification, except for the fact that when you don't note that it's a tornado match, tagging still needs to happen. And I'm almost positive the buck who pinned Phoenix was not legal. Beyond that, there were hardly any, if any, tags during the match. The wrestling was strong as always, not notably so beyond what they have done previously. I see people out there 
tweeting on Reddit, wherever, saying these just keep getting better and better. Everyone is better than the last one. I don't know how anyone holds that opinion. I think these are progressively getting worse and worse. Like it's it's wearing on me as a viewer. And that's not to, worse and worse. I'm not saying like this was bad. This was a four-star A- A-minus match. It's a really good match. Don't get me wrong. But they started with like a 4.75 or a 5, an A+. And as we keep going here, yeah, I know some of the matches are different and they're being built and wrestled differently on purpose. But much of the matches are just move, 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 finisher, 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 high spot, high spot, high spot. And again, that's really entertaining, but it doesn't necessarily have any type of psychology aspect to it. I mean, the hammer storyline, yes, that is weaved throughout the entire thing. But beyond that, there's not really much to chew on and grab a hold of. The wrestling was strong, not notably so beyond what they had done previously. The win was assumed going in, so that didn't help the finish. And the finish itself wasn't even really that exciting. So again, right around four stars, A minus. It is now 3-2 Death Triangle over Elite. They will obviously have the the sixth match in the series coming up. The Elite will win and will go to a seventh match, which I believe is on that January 4th show. On Rampage, Jon Moxley fought Sammy Guevara. Sammy tore an earring out of Mox's head for absolutely no reason during a random taped Rampage match. Then he put Mox on the timekeeper's table and hit a swanton bomb outside. That was a great spot. Mox caught Sammy flying for hammer elbows, a pile driver, the bulldog choke, and an inside-out lariat. Sammy reversed Death Rider and hit a swanton inside for a false finish. Then he hit a Spanish fly that Mox totally no-sold, just immediately taking it into a bulldog choke, and the referee called a knockout with Sammy still moving with his eyes still open. It's actually frustrating to me how AEW tries to protect everyone with knockouts instead of submissions. There's no harm in Sammy tapping out to Mox. It was a strong match from bell to bell. Mox just needs to take a chill pill on some of the shit that he's doing. After the match, Mox called out Hangman Page, who ran down and attacked him. He fought off security, and then he hit a buckshot lariat on a staffer, and then he clotheslined Mox into the crowd. Remember, this guy is still not cleared in kayfabe, but in reality, he's being allowed to get physically involved week after week. It's just nonsensical And it's also repetitive to this point. We'll eventually get a great match between the two. No doubt about that. But can we just build the story a little bit more? That's really all I'm asking. And maybe that match happens January 4th. If it does, they're going all in on this show. And if that is the case, then it probably is the debut of Sasha Banks. If they're going to just put this match on top of the other ones they've already announced. And I'm not saying they are, but it does feel like that's the way it's going. On Dynamite, Mox announced he was participating in a $300,000 battle royal on Rampage, telling Hangman he would be there waiting for him again, and he can't use being injury prone as an excuse. Then he said the same thing about his upcoming opponent, Darius Martin. So he had Mox against Martin. Mox worked his rehab knee. Darius did an incredibly odd Pele kick repelled off of a turnbuckle. Mox then caught him flying with hammer elbows and a bulldog choke into a Death Rider for the win in nine minutes. More than anything, this just felt like a completely unnecessary match especially if it wasn't going to advance the Hangman feud. I assume Hangman's going to cost Mox the Battle Royal on Friday, and that's going to lead to their match that I just mentioned, probably happening January 4th. But again, this match on Dynamite, it just, it was completely unnecessary. That's the best way I can put it. On Rampage, Soraya cut a, Soraya, Soraya, potato, potato, uh, cut a taped promo about having a plethora of talent from which to choose her partner against Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter. Nothing specific or even really generic was revealed. Then on Rampage, we had Baker against Sky Blue. Britt hit a super kick and a stomp for the win. She put in Lockjaw after the bell until Hikaru Shida 
entered with a kendo stick and put a big shot on Baker before facing off with Hader in typical AEW women's title match build. We really, really have nothing else to say there. On Dynamite, we did have that women's championship match, Hader against Sheeta. This was rightly the main event of the show. Sheeta did a suplex off the apron to ringside area. Hader missed a moonsault. Sheeta capitalized with a running knee for a near fall. Hader came back with a carry neckbreaker over her knee and a sliding lariat for another near fall. Sheeta nailed some kicks, missed a katana, and did a release German suplex. When Rebel distracted, Sheeta dragged Baker carrying a kendo stick in the ring and drilled her in the stomach. The referee's back was turned for a good 90 seconds while this was happening, by the way. That gave Hader an opening for her Karana roll through, failed powerbomb, rolled through into a powerbomb and a near fall. Then Hader hit her running lariat for a false finish, and she immediately followed with Haterade, the Rainmaker, to retain the title in about 16 minutes. The heels attacked with Tony Storm making the save before Hader drilled her in the back with the title. They tried for a second title shot when Soraya made, ran down to make the second save. All right, holy shit, this match was a banger. Let's just start there, okay? Probably a top two or three women's match in AEW history. Exceptional wrestling from bell to bell and a really high intensity finish. The post-match stuff, total eye roll because it always happens. And it took away from being able to savor the match in itself after it was over. But it was a worthy main event. It made Hater look even stronger than she already was. 4.25 stars and an A. This is one of those matches where, you know, if I ever think about, hey, I should watch a couple Jamie Hater matches, I would go back and particularly watch this match with Sheeta. On Rampage, FTR came out saying they let the fans down by losing their AEW opportunity and the ROH titles last week, which was a poor way to close out the best year of their careers. Cash Wheeler talked about Gun Club being a thorn in their side. Dax Harwood put himself and Cash over for the double dog collar match before promising to tan the hides of the guns. It was a fine promo. It just felt immensely repetitive. It's like they say the same stuff every single time they get the mics. And it's not like The Rock coming out and doing his shtick and talking about poontang pie or whatever the case might be. It's just like Dax talking about, here's my eight-year-old daughter and what she has to say. And yeah, we didn't do exactly what we wanted, but we're going to beat this next team. It's... It really just feels like all of their promos are identical to each other. And as much as I really do like FTR as wrestlers, the other aspects of it, you know, it's just kind of falling off for me. That's the best way I can put it. On Dynamite, we did get that match FTR against Gun Club. The heels got heat mimicking HBK doing the DX chop and then putting Dax in a sharpshooter. They also wore pink trunks to call to Dax's favorite, Bret Hart. Harwood sold an injured ass, literally. Uh, Austin Gunn reversed a rolling pinning combination with his brother grabbing his arm beyond the ropes for the win in a blatant, cheating fashion. Commentary sold it as a rare and surprising three-match losing streak for FTR. I'm interested to see where the storyline goes as I figured this would probably be the end of it. It's good for the Guns to get a big win like this over FTR, but this match was just nothing to write home about. On Dynamite, Sanjay Dutt did a rap over the acclaimed instrumental ahead of their tag team title match, which I think is on Rampage this week. Taz had a really good line calling it, quote, one of the most awkward raps ever. And you know what? It perfectly described this and what it was. I know they were going for stupid heel comedy, something so bad it's good. The way you execute that is what we got from the Miz and Johnny drip drip, right, over on Raw during that short period of time where John Morrison came back and they were doing those raps and their songs together. That is stupid heel comedy, something so bad that it's good. And it's a fine concept to do that in theory. It really is. But this 
wasn't bad enough in a comedic way to be good. It was just really freaking bad and awkward. As Taz said, it was awkward. I don't know who saw this and then said, yeah, we should put that on air. That makes sense. People are going to like this. I, mind boggling. But if that was mind boggling, oh boy. So on Dynamite, uh, Rick Ross, for some reason, moderated a face-to-face with Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland that, by the way, we've been waiting for weeks to get. Rick Ross said he was going to make history five times. He also called Swerve a young mogul like five times. Honestly, it was probably more. He introduced Swerve, who didn't come out. Then Rick Ross called Keith a, quote, big motherfucker right into the mic. If AEW can have Rick Ross saying big motherfucker unbleeped on cable, TBS, TNT, you're not doing shit about it. Fox and USA Network can let WWE fans chant, holy shit, unbleeped. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me a break. I know the rules of cable. I know that theoretically you can say the F word and it doesn't really matter. And USA Network, they had Mr. Robot where they said, I I know all this stuff. I know WWE's TV PG, but if it's the fans chanting, holy shit, just let it go. When you mute the TV for 20 seconds while f- during an exciting moment where you want to hear the fans being boisterous and excited and, and getting something over, you're ruining the moment. I know that was a complete tangent. Fox, USA Network, WWE, TVPG, you got to get past the holy shit chance. Allow them through and worry about people actually cursing like this. Anyway, getting back to the point. Swerve came out saying he's sick of doing things on Keith's time and they should own the world together, but he can't deal with Keith's accusations. And Rick Ross is like on the mic, like co-signing this shit while, while he's saying all this. He said, Keith can't keep his eye on the ball, his titles, or his health. He needs to keep eyes in the back of his head. So after like a, I don't know, five or seven second delay, Parker Boudreaux attacked Keith from behind wearing the same logo sweater that Swerve was wearing. He was sloppy and all over the place. Every punch that he threw or whatever looked like it was a cartoon character doing it. Keith just like no-sold every shot and just like pushed him over the ropes outside. Rick Ross just kept saying young mogul into the mic and calling Swerve a legend making history. Then some random dude covered in tattoos with a bald head and like a single braid attacked Keith long enough so Parker could hit him with a chair. They put him on the steel steps and held a cinder block on his chest as Swerve did a coup de gras, shattering it from the top rope outside. And then their name was uh, unveiled or revealed as Mogul Affiliates. Folks, me calling this trash is being nice. It, it was horrific. I get wanting to use Rick Ross's star power. Fine. First of all, if it was 2010 or 2012, it would work far better. It's 2022. No one gives a shit about Rick Ross anymore. But if you're going to have him out there, tell him to say two lines and then shut the fuck up and get the hell out of the way. But even if you completely removed Rick Ross from this, it would be 95% just as awful. Giving Swerve a group or an eventual faction, it's a great idea. Using these fucking guys, green as grass Parker, and some other dude that no one, and I legitimately did research to see if anyone recognized the second dude. No one knows him. 
I thought to myself, okay, maybe he's from the Nightmare Factory. He's a prospect or something like that, I guess. Turns out he is a prospect, but he comes from Jay Lethal's training facility. And he used to be a minor league baseball player. What an absolute joke. Now, the cinder block spot, that was cool as hell. But this is Swerve and Keith Lee. You don't need anything else beyond them being Swerve and Keith Lee and being former partners who broke up because they can't trust each other. You don't need Rick Ross or Parker or generic random tattoo man number six. And you certainly don't need Keith no selling their shit until he gets hit by a chair. I legitimately believe this was one of the five worst segments in AEW history on par with the Cody Agogo weigh-in, Britt Baker's cheeseburger deal, that Dark Order segment on like the last show of the year, two years ago, whenever that was. I actually believe that despite this happening on December 21st, 10 days before the end of the year, this has an opportunity to win our 0.0 worst moment of the year in our Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties, in two weeks' time. And that's a shame because Keith and Swerve are literally, without exaggeration, probably two of my 12, 15, 17 favorite wrestlers that exist right now. At least they used to be. My Lord was this bad. Who were the ad wizards that came up with this one? Zero point zero. That is one big pile of shit. Yeah, this was one big pile of shit. Oh, and for people who criticized like Bronson Reed not getting a pop on Raw. Tell me what you thought of Parker and generic tattoo man number five showing up in a segment with a rap star and two of the company's best wrestlers. This shit was legitimately dead on arrival. And by the way, Mogul Affiliated is a terrible name for a group. That's on top of the rest of this being shit. Just a dreadful segment from start to finish. On Rampage, Wardlow fought Exodus Prime. I thought for a second, this guy was a transformer. Wardlow won with the Powerbomb Symphony, then called out Samoa Joe. Joe appeared on the big screen saying he was willing to defend his title on the final Dynamite of 2022. Is this still only a TNT title match? Are they actually not merging the titles? That would just be a massive mistake if so. And then on Dynamite, Joe was like suited up in front of a Christmas tree. I'm not exaggerating when I say that he literally said nothing of consequence whatsoever. And then on Dynamite, we had Hook against Exodus Prime, So this unsigned guy now appeared on both shows in one week. Hook did his normal repertoire. He won with Red Rum. The firm appeared on screen with Stoke talking trash as Jungle Boy got beat up and then chokeslammed into a dumpster by Big Bill. So Jungle Boy really went from a personal blood feud with Christian Cage and Luchasaurus to getting chokeslammed into a dumpster by Big Bill. Come on. Uh, on Rampage, Jim Ross interviewed Preston Vance. He said Dark Order were never his brothers, and he was handpicked by Brody Lee while the rest of Dark Order was not. But he was handpicked by Brody Lee to be part of Dark Order, where everyone was a family. That's the whole gimmick. He said now he really had brothers, and that negative one never should have been forced to go through the tragedy that he did. But now he's become a spoiled brat. This was supposed to be like a big sit-down interview. It was a manic, cut-up, 60 seconds of conversation, and it didn't even really make any sense. And then lastly, on Rampage, we had Best Friends and Dustin Rhodes against Kip Sabian, Trent Seven, The Butcher, and The Blade. What a random assortment of people. Uh, Sabian hit a seated springboard moonsault outside. Dustin did a cannonball senton off the ring apron. Penelope Ford tried to distract, so Orange Cassidy 
pulled an Eddie Guerrero selling a low blow. The bunny got in the ring. Danhausen followed suit with Ford. The women got ejected. Then Sabian actually punched Danhausen in the balls right in front of the referee who did nothing about it. Seven countered a superplex into a side slam in a cool spot. Dustin hit Sabian with a Canadian destroyer and rang his bells in the corner. Then they beat Seven with an orange punch and a bulldog. This was a perfect house show match. Like with the baby faces going over, a lot of funny spots, comedy, all that stuff. For TV, the main event of a rampage, I had zero interest. It felt out of place and it just didn't feel like it mattered at all. And I think all of these guys are going to be in this $300,000 battle royal. Does that matter? No. I mean, I think it's a vehicle to, again, have Hangman cost Mox money. So there's another element to their feud. I guess we'll find out as we go. Uh, But that was AEW this week. As I kind of noted, there were positives, right? Especially the the Hater-Sheeta match, fantastic. The Elite Death Triangle match, very good. And a couple of those opening promo segments are strong, but man, the rest of what we got on Dynamite and Rampage, really rough, man. And I know that they're making all these changes, you know, starting January 4th, new set, production elements, possibly talent if Sasha Banks shows up. A really stacked card to get a, to pop, I should say, a huge rating on the first Dynamite of 2023. And I hope it works. I really do. Um, But, you know, a lot of you tweet this to me. It's not something that I necessarily believe because I do think there's still a lot of really good stuff going on in AEW. But a lot of you do tweet me, man, AEW has just gone downhill rapidly in 2022. And I do think it's fair to say that the average show quality has diminished, but the ratings have as well. It's kind of matched up pretty perfectly with that. The the thing about AEW, and this was always true with WWE as well, the talent is there. So if you get the booking to match the talent, then people are going to watch the show in droves. And there's a lot of people right now in AEW not being used. And some, there's good reason, obviously. Uh, Miro reportedly was pitched a story that he declined because it ended with him losing. So he didn't want to do it. So He's healthy and just waiting for them to come up with creative for him. Andrade presumably is still suspended after, I guess, trying to get fired by shoving Sammy in the face, allegedly, or whatever the hell happened there. But then you have like House of Black, right? Who you just brought back. Fans are hot for him. They just weren't on the show. And you have Darby Allen, who's super talented. Fans like him. Just not wrestling on shows. And if he is, it's meaningless matches. You have Jungle Boy, who's getting beat up in a dumpster by Big Bill instead of just wrestling matches on the show. You know, and I could probably go on Eddie Kingston. Where's Eddie Kingston? I mean, what's up with him? Um, Roosh, you have Roosh signed, one of the most talented wrestlers in the world, not doing anything. I could literally go on and on with all of this. It's immensely frustrating. Um, You know, AEW has really fallen into the trap that WWE did for a period of time. Really large roster, using a finite number of people at a given time, and really not spreading the wealth around. And... You know, we're going to see what happens, obviously, as they transition into this, you know, show in the new year and certainly their next pay-per-view and and as things roll on from there, you know, I don't think that AEW is going anywhere. They're not going to fold. They will get a new TV deal and they're going to make a lot of money from that. But it is fair to say that all of the momentum that AEW had for like the first two years of existence, it progressively waned as 2022 progressed. And really, since Brawl Out, despite the a lot of Dynamite episodes improving since then and particularly coming out of full gear. Uh, Despite some of the TV shows getting better, the overall just interest in the product, the freshness of it, it's it's waning. And I don't exactly know what they can do to capture attention, even if they do bring in uh, Sasha Banks. We love Sasha Banks. She would be 
their second or third probably biggest signing ever is the argument I would make about that. And I'll repeat that when, if and when it actually happens. But even bringing her in, okay, so you get a jolt from that and then what? Let's say they can bring Adam Cole back. He recovers from his concussion stuff and maybe Kyle O'Reilly from whatever he, whatever's going on with him. Okay, you bring them back. And then what? How do you make that exciting? I, I don't know that they have the answers right now. And I'm going to be curious to see uh, if they do as 2023 progresses. So that is it from this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Appreciate you all joining once again for this full breakdown of NXT and AEW. A reminder of what is coming up over the next two weeks. Next week, WWE episode, AEW NXT episode, and then a special 2022 year in review from the wildest 12 months in professional wrestling history. And then two weeks from now, again, another WWE episode, another AEW NXT episode, and the 2022 Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties. And you all are getting overheads, our listeners, will be able to vote in those awards on Twitter. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can vote in the awards. You can get episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that stuff all week, every week. I should also mention, since I don't want to you know, make anyone think I forgot, uh, all those contributions that you guys gave to this podcast, we have officially determined the equipment that we are buying. I have officially determined the service that we will be moving, getting over to. Don't worry, it's still free. It's just a a podcast type of uh, production and uploading service. I needed to move it, make something a little bit more professional than what we were currently doing. But the new equipment, the new podcast setup, that is going to come in early 2023. So hopefully we have improved sound quality, not just in terms of my voice, which I mean, I don't even know how you guys can take listening to me for an hour at a time, but you do. So thank you so much. Um, But uh, not just my voice and Chris's voice, but also the way the sound drops come through on the episodes, the way we take interviews with wrestlers, those are going to sound super crisp as long as all the equipment that I've been told to buy works the way I'm told to expect it to work, right? So assuming everything works out, uh, the show quality, the, the audio is going to be crisper. We may even have the opportunity to do some video here and there. That'll be exciting. And our upload speeds will be faster, hopefully in early 2023. I'm still trying to decide if I should do it in the middle of January or early February, immediately after the Royal Rumble. I, I'm leaning right now on early February after the Royal Rumble, just because I don't want there to be any issues. Like maybe we'll improve the sound. We'll get the new equipment. We'll use that early in 2023. And then we'll wait to change services uh, until February. But one way or another, um, it'll be early 2023 by mid-February before Valentine's Day. All those contributions that you gave to the show will finally be realized. And I just wanted you all once again to know with 2022 closing out, I greatly appreciate it. And I thank you all for listening to this show every single week. So on the way out, one more reminder, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. You know, folks. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little time. Leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Tell them why they should subscribe. And if you do, we will read your five-star reviews right here on the podcast. Thank you all once again for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.